On March 1, 1999, filmmaker Stanley Kubrick debuted a cut of his latest movie for the first time to a group of mostly family, friends, and movie executives. Though the screening itself was an intimate affair, the film was a really big deal in Hollywood at the time. Even though he was essentially a living legend at that point and had worked with some of the most important names in the industry, Kubrick had largely been absent from the public eye for more than a decade. At the time of the screening, in that spring evening of 1999, he hadn't released the film in 12 years, and during that time, he'd rarely been heard from. He notoriously loathed being interviewed. However, that screening, it led to some unexpected feedback. Kubrick, the master filmmaker behind classics like A Clockwork Orange, The Shining, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Full Metal Jacket, and others, had obsessed over a particular script for years. The script was for a film that would be entitled Eyes Wide Shut, but along with working on the script for a significant portion of his life, the production was unlike anything Hollywood had ever seen. It went on for more than 400 days. That's still the longest continuous film shoot of all time, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. The movie also starred two of the biggest names in Hollywood, the then power couple of Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. With the crazy amount of time that had gone into the production and the presence of two A-list superstars, it's hard to overstate the anticipation for that first screening of the movie Eyes Wide Shut. However, when viewers saw it for the first time that evening, they were left confused. Despite running for nearly three hours, the plot was razor thin, the ending was confusing, and much of the film seemed to linger on strange rituals and scenes that are punctuated with odd symbols and occult imagery. Viewers were perplexed, and there was some speculation that because there were still a few weeks until its official release, Kubrick still had some footage to add to the film that might solve all of the mystery about what it was actually supposed to be about. However, six days later, Stanley Kubrick was dead. I'm Jesse Carey. I'm a writer, a journalist, and a podcaster. And this is Hiding Something. Season 3, Leviathan. Chapter 4, The Impossible Window At the time of that first screening of Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick had already become an extremely mysterious figure in Hollywood. Though some of his early films were relatively conventional, like Paths of Glory and Spartacus, things started to take a controversial turn in 1962 when he released his adaptation of the controversial novel Lolita about a middle-aged academic who develops a disturbing obsession with an adolescent girl. By the time he would go on to release Dr. Strangelove, a satire about powerful people developing powerful technology, and 2001 A Space Odyssey, a surreal sci-fi epic that opens with a strange monolith being discovered in the desert, it was clear that Kubrick was becoming a different kind of film director. However, it was 1971's A Clockwork Orange that showed just how hauntingly dark and mysterious Stanley Kubrick could go. The plot involves shocking scenes of violence, but the film, down to the poster, it's laced with strange, coded imagery. For those wondering, the poster features an eyeball inside of a triangle, not dissimilar to the Eye of Providence that we discussed last episode. However, it was his 1980 film The Shining that cemented his legacy as one of the world's most mysterious directors. Despite being quote-unquote adapted from a Stephen King novel, much of the film holds very little resemblance to the book. Instead, it's an odd film about a man, played by Jack Nicholson, who slowly descends into a homicidal mania after taking a job as the off-season caretaker at an aging hotel. However, much of the loose plot makes very little sense. 
Stephen King, the legendary horror writer who wrote the book that The Shining is based on, famously hated the film and was so perplexed by its plotting, he once said it was like, quote, a big, beautiful Cadillac with no engine inside of it. In fact, it was the only of his nine films that wasn't nominated for a single Oscar or Golden Globe. And not only that, it earned him a Golden Razzie nomination for Worst Director of the Year. This is Stanley Kubrick we're talking about. However, as time went on, something strange started to happen with The Shining. Obsessive Kubrick fans started to find codes seemingly hidden within the film. First off, it's really important to note that Stanley Kubrick was obsessed with details. Everything, I mean everything, in every frame of his films are tightly controlled and highly intentional. One of the reasons it's so fun to rewatch his movies is that because every frame is so deeply intentional. From the colors, to the shapes, to the lighting, even to things like patterns and wall curtains, in Kubrick films, everything might mean something. Even the layers of the interiors of buildings, like let's say The Shining's haunted Overlook Hotel, could have hidden meaning if the viewers took the tremendous amount of time to sketch them out and study them. One of the clues that has long fascinated fans of the movie is a large garden maze on the hotel grounds, which is the location of a chase scene late in the film. Notably, the maze, it doesn't appear in Stephen King's novel. However, Kubrick takes pains to give viewers a look at the entire maze and its patterns, even constructing a two-scale miniature version that was shown at one point in the movie. As YouTube film analyst Jay Dyer explains in a Shining Breakdown on his YouTube channel, even the camera angles that show the full scope of the miniature copy of the maze could be a clue. In this case, linking it to an ancient religious symbol and possibly a secret society you may remember. And we are constantly given camera angles and shots in E.T., for example, from a child's perspective. This is reminiscent of the Hortus Palantius, where we see a garden maze that is similar to the maze of the Overlook Hotel. The Hortus Palantius was the alchemical garden from the 17th century, known as the Eighth Wonder of the World, constructed by Elector Frederick Palantine V, for his wife, Elizabeth Stewart. According to Enlightenment scholar Dame Frances Yates, the garden signified the Rosicrucian mysteries, both regrets, both regents, and friends of Francis Bacon, it should be noted. Largely destroyed during the Thirty Years' War, the garden mazes are replete with esoteric symbology. According to Yates, we can see in Kubrick's maze that same principle at work. In fact, while looking at the image of the maze, uh, in the film, we notice how similar it is to a mandala and a sigil. Look, when it comes to extremely specific, though also seemingly random details, The Shining is full of them. And to be fair, if you look hard enough, you might be able to see what you want to see, not just whatever Kubrick meant. But there is an emerging group of film junkies and some conspiracy theorists who have dedicated themselves to unlocking the mysteries of The Shining to figure out what it was that Kubrick was trying to say to us. Kubrick shows you, but he shows you this lobby, and you get to see, as Jack moves across the lobby, you see the elevator beyond, and you see beyond that a hallway. You don't see yet how far back it goes, you know, the other things back there, but you have an impression that this place is towards the middle of the hotel. You, you just have that impression that it's towards the middle of the hotel. And you go from the lobby into the general manager's office, and then into Ullman's office, and there's this window. 
And the window is a powerful window. I mean, the light coming through there is glaring. It's like a character in itself. It's, it takes over, and you've got these uh, tendrily sinister kind of trees that are outside the window. And you've got, it's, it's just such a forceful presence, this light that comes over everything. And, and you know, and, you, and there's something wrong with it. There's something wrong with it, and I think there, it registers as something wrong. This is an impossible window. It's not, it, it is impossible. It is physically impossible. It cannot be there. It should not be there. There's no place in the hotel for this window to exist. That's the voice of writer and cinematographer Julie Carnes explaining the existence of a strange window that appears during a critical scene in the film. The window emits natural sunlight and trees are visible in the foreground. But, as she explains, if you carefully map out the hotel, the wall is actually an interior wall in the hotel, meaning the window, it shouldn't exist. But look, it's an anomaly that you would only know exists if you took the time to create a blueprint of the hotel. So, why did Kubrick go through all the trouble of adding it? The clip of Julia Carnes appears in a documentary called Room 237. The movie features extended interviews with film scholars who have spent years dissecting The Shining, and each has come to a different conclusion as to what the codes mean. Okay, just a quick side note. I'm not going to give away too much of the plot, but Room 237 is a reference to a room number ominously seen on a door in the film. Notably, though, in King's novel, the ominous room is actually room 217. So, why did Kubrick change it? Well, there are plenty of theories, like this one from the YouTube channel called Something About the Movies. Also in Making the Shining, Kubrick stresses the importance of changes. You're lucky if people get copies of the changes. (laughs) Changes, or things in between. So, therefore, we could say that the interesting thing about room 217 and room 237 is the difference in between these rooms. If we sum up 217, we get 10. And the sum of 237 is 12. In between 10 and 12 is the number 11. The number 11 therefore could be seen as a number in between numbers, a ghost number. So is it a coincidence that The Shining is Kubrick's 11th film? Anyways, in the documentary Room 237, all of the theories are really interesting, and I definitely encourage you to check out the entire movie, but there's one theory I want to hone in on. Uh, My interpretation of The Shining is that there's many levels to this film. This is like three-dimensional chess, and he's trying to tell us several stories that appear to be separate, but actually are not. And he's doing this both through the overt script that he wrote, he's telling it through tricks um, of the trade, the subliminal imagery and these constant retakes giving him odd angles and things. And he's also uh, telling you uh, through the um, changes that he made to the Stephen King novel. So if you watch those three things, you begin to understand this deeper story. And this deeper story has its uh, birth, I guess, uh, in the idea that uh, Stanley Kubrick was involved with faking the Apollo moon landings. In fact, I contend that 2001 Space Odyssey, in part, was a research and development project for the Apollo footage that was shot. I'm not saying we didn't go to the moon, I'm just saying that what we saw was faked and that it was faked by Stanley Kubrick. That's the voice of producer and filmmaker Jay Wiedner in Room 237. Okay, stick with me, because at first, this theory sounds pretty nuts. But the codes and symbols he's identified in the movie, they are really compelling. 
For a little context here, Wiener claims that he has worked with special effects gurus from the 1970s to determine that the footage of the Apollo moon landing is the result of a filmmaking technique called front screen projection. It's an analog way of making actors appear to be in a different location than they actually are. Look, it's not dissimilar to how Marvel movies will use digital technology and green screens to make Thor look like he's hanging out on Asgard when he's really just in a warehouse in Atlanta. As Weidner notes, it was a really innovative technique at the time, and Kubrick, he had used it in previous films. Weidner theorizes that in the 1960s, Stanley Kubrick became involved with NASA, the government, or some kind of powerful institution, and he was either convinced or compelled to help them create footage of a moon landing that would be so authentic that no one would ever be able to notice that it was actually faked. After all, you have to remember that at the time, Kubrick was largely seen as one of the world's greatest filmmakers. But... Wiener suggests that at some point, for some reason, Kubrick became involved with these incredibly powerful forces that compelled him to create footage that would deceive humanity. But, according to the theory, at some point, something caused Kubrick to become haunted and even alarmed by the work of this secret, powerful institution. And, the theory goes, he would use The Shining as a way of blowing the lid off the whole secret operation and to let people know that something extremely sinister was happening with these government agencies. Look, I get it. This all sounds pretty crazy. That is, until you actually start seeing the codes. Take the number 237. At the time, before sophisticated satellite technology, the mean distance from the Earth to the moon was thought to be exactly 237,000 miles. There's a ton of other strange details that could connect the moon landing and the shining. But there's one scene that's pretty unshakable once you see it through this lens. The film's protagonist, a young boy named Danny, is shown playing in the hallway in the hotel, moving trucks along the pattern lines on the carpet. But, as Wiener notes, that pattern looks a lot like actual roads that trucks use to move the Apollo rocket. When Danny rises in that scene, it is revealed that on Danny's sweater is a large rocket with the word Apollo 11 USA written on it. After rising, Danny slowly walks to a room. It's room 237. And this time, the door is open, and a key, along with a key tag, is hanging from the lock. I'll let Jay Wiener explain why this could be so significant. There's a key in the lock, and on the key are is the words room and then the word N-O, which is an old uh, acronym for number, so room number 237, except that the only capital letters on the key are R-O-O-M and then the N from the acronym N-O, and if there's only two words that you can come up with that have those letters in them, and that's moon and room. And so on the key, the tag, it says moon room. Sure, that sounds pretty on the nose, but Wiener has found a ton of these types of images, and they're honestly hard to explain. He even offers an explanation for the film's most baffling image, the final of the entire movie. After the events of the film, the camera zooms in on a black and white photo hanging on the wall that shows a very crowded formal ball that had taken place four decades prior. Impossibly, in the front of the photo is Jack Nicholson's character wearing a tuxedo. He appears to be waving to the camera, but if you look very closely, there appears to be an almost imperceivably small piece of paper folded up in the palm of his hand. As Wiener explains in this video clip from an interview with the YouTube channel Reality Checked, called Secrets of the Shining, even this could be a clue. Most people uh, see the movie don't realize what's going on, but if you look, Jack is holding a note in his uh, right hand a secret note, and there's a gentleman behind him who's looking at the camera and is grabbing Jack's arm as if to stop him from Mm. revealing that he has this secret note. And I think, again, this is the secret, is that um, 
the secret note is the secrets of the shining that I just told you. Interesting. And this guy is one of the people in Hollywood or somebody in the intelligence agencies that's trying to stop Kubrick. All right, I get it. All of this sounds really out there. I mean, look, the suggestion is that at some point in the 1960s, powerful forces within the global community were somehow able to convince one of the world's most talented and enigmatic filmmakers to conspire with them to fool humanity. Using his skill and their untold resources, they would create footage so realistic that it would fool humanity into believing that it actually showed human beings walking on the surface of the moon. Now look, personally, I find this really hard to believe. I do believe we landed on the moon in 1969. Sure, there would have been plenty of motivation to lie about it, but America has an extremely sophisticated space program. But hypothetically, it seems at least plausible that the footage of the moon landing could have been doctored or even faked, even if I think that's extremely unlikely. Okay, plain devil's advocate here, maybe 1960s era broadcast technology was too unreliable to transmit clear videos from the surface of the moon, and NASA teamed up with an expert filmmaker to fake it. Again, it really seems unlikely, but it's not impossible. The theory goes that after he made this Faustian bargain with these powerful global forces to pull off the deception, that Kubrick got closer to the inner workings of this powerful, secretive group and became increasingly uncomfortable with his involvement with them. Knowing the reach and the power of the people who he had conspired with, Kubrick used the rest of his career to devise of ways of revealing the truth to the public without tipping his hand to whomever was so deeply invested in keeping the moon landing staging a secret. Remember, this is all just a theory. But The Shining, according to the theory, is a sort of coded confession in which Kubrick reveals his involvement with faking the moon landing. But why choose such a dark, horrific story to be the medium for this confession? Well, Maybe it's his final movie that holds the next clue, at least according to some conspiracy theories. For more than a decade, Kubrick had developed an obsession with turning an obscure novella called Dream Story into a feature film. Like most of his work, Kubrick's adaptation would eventually take serious liberties with the source material and would turn it into something all its own. On the surface, the film follows a well-to-do doctor played by Tom Cruise and his wife, played by Nicole Kidman, over the course of a very strange few evenings. The pair attend a wild Christmas party alongside some professional associates. There, they witness a young woman nearly overdosing on drugs, who's only saved after Cruz's character intervenes. It's important to note, Cruz's character, he's a doctor. During an argument the following night, Kidman's character reveals that she once entertained the idea of having an affair with a naval officer, which sends her husband into an emotional spiral. That one small detail, that the object of her lust was a naval officer, seems like a really small detail, but again, nothing in Kubrick's films is incidental. Either way though, in the movie, soon Cruz's character gets a call from a patient which demands his immediate attention. From there, through chance run-ins and connections, Cruz's character finds out about a strange gathering happening at a large mansion, and he even discovers the password needed for entry. Once there, he realizes that everyone is required to wear ornate, often extremely creepy, masquerade ball-style masks that will conceal their real identities. After making his way inside the large mansion, he witnesses a series of graphic, sexually charged, occult-like rituals. Eventually, he's discovered, which triggers a series of events that culminate in the death of a young woman, several encounters with powerful figures who warn him of the dangers of exposing what he's witnessed, and a confession to his wife. Okay, on the surface, it's a really strange film, and like much of Kubrick's work, it was initially dismissed as a misstep by a master filmmaker when it was first seen. But in the years since its release, it's experienced a resurgence among a certain type of internet film critic, one's not overly concerned with what the movie is about, but instead, what Kubrick might be trying to tell us. 
in what is probably the movie's most famous internet gif. The face of Kidman's character, who happens to be named Alice, yes, like Alice in Wonderland, fills the frame. She stares directly into the camera. With her hand resting against her chin, she slowly lifts one finger, letting it rest just below her lower lip. Yes, it's almost identical to the boy version of the falcon-headed god Horus, known as Hippocrates, we discussed last episode. In the movie's poster, Kidman is famously framed with one eye, looking directly at the viewer. And it's not the only time an all-seen eye is referenced. In some versions of the poster, she's even sitting below a triangular shape. At one point, Tom Cruise's character, remember, he's a doctor, meets a woman who tells him that he had once assisted her at a chance encounter at an event at Rockefeller Center. She had gotten something in her eye and needed his help removing it. Remember, Kubrick spent years writing this script and literally spent longer than anyone else has ever to shoot a movie, so let's assume that nothing is unintentional. Last episode's discussion of the Eye of Horus offers a possible explanation as to why the eye references, a theme that's found throughout Kubrick's work, is so significant. But why Rockefeller Center? Well, in a few episodes, we'll unpack the origins of conspiracy theories surrounding extremely, generationally powerful families like the Rockefellers. But is there something less obvious that Kubrick could be pointing to? The Rockefeller family also used to operate a very famous restaurant, one that you can still eat at, called the Rainbow Room, which sits atop Rockefeller Center. References to rainbows are found throughout the film, and they seem to symbolize a sort of portal into understanding a very dangerous knowledge. At one point in the film, one character literally asks another, Do you want to go to where the rainbow ends? At another point, when Cruz meets a beautiful young woman, he's told that she is taking him, quote, where the rainbow is. Then there are the eight-pointed stars. Alongside other obscure occult imagery, they're everywhere throughout the film. Known as the Star of Ishtar, or the Star of Venus, it's a symbol with associations to power that date back to the ancient Babylonians. For a brief time in the 1960s, it was even at the center of Iraq's official flag. But there are more symbols everywhere. The people at the Masquerade Ball, where Tom Cruise witnesses the dark, sexually charged rituals, are wearing ornately crafted masks, and the one who seems to be in control is sitting on a throne underneath the carving of a double-headed eagle. Remember from last episode, that's a symbol that originated from a secret society within the Freemasons that were known as the Rose Cross. The masks themselves also seem to be a reference to actual masquerade balls organized by rich and powerful families like the Rothschilds, who were known for their mysterious, surrealist mask balls attended by some of the richest people in the world. Oh yeah, one other thing to note here. The actual mansion where the disturbing scenes were shot, it's called the Mintmore Towers, and it was built in 1854 for the Rothschild family. The movie is littered with these types of images. That is, if you're looking for them. Early on, there's a reference to the two columns that symbolize the entrance to the mysteries within Solomon's Temple, the most significant place in all of Freemasonry. Literally, those columns are shown in one of the film's opening frames. Remember that in some Masonic lore, Solomon's Temple was also the location of the priceless yet mysterious treasures that some believe the Rosicrucians conspired with the Knights Templar to hide underneath Oak Island. Then there are the mirrors in Eyes Wide Shut. I mean, they're everywhere. And they could be a reference to Alice's through the looking glass moment in Alice in Wonderland. There's also constant references to the extreme dangers the characters will face if they ever figure out what's really going on. It's pretty clear that the quote-unquote movie Kubrick created was actually a strange, possibly unsolvable puzzle whose solution has deeply sinister implications. But it's only in recent years that people think they may have finally solved the puzzle. The theory suggests that early on, Kubrick learned of the power of mind control programs like MKUltra and attempted to expose them through his film A Clockwork Orange. 
But later in his career, for reasons that are still unclear, something or someone compelled him to work with forces that would eventually deceive humanity through a staged moon landing. The conspiracy theory goes that the horror movie The Shining is his confession, but it also hints that something much more sinister is afoot. Eyes Wide Shut is laced with occult symbols, but also graphically depicts occult rituals being conducted by the powerful. The theory suggests that for years he worked on the coded puzzle, only to die suddenly and very unexpectedly, less than a week after revealing the film to movie executives. According to medical reports, he died of a sudden heart attack in his home. Could Kubrick have been the victim of the powerful forces he was trying to expose? If so, that means he was trying to expose something so profound that people were willing to do terrible things to keep him quiet. This scenario, it's an actual plot point in Eyes Wide Shut, when Tom Cruise's character is confronted by a rich associate who issues a very lightly veiled threat to keep his mouth shut. Listen, Bill, nobody killed anybody. Someone died, it happens all the time. But life goes on, it always does, until it doesn't. <laughs> but you know that, don't you? Okay, but the big question here isn't one of plausibility. It's pretty clear that Kubrick really did hide strange symbols and codes in his work. It's simply a question of motivation. What if Kubrick, like Cruz's character, really was trying to expose some extremely dark things done by extremely powerful people? Okay, I want to take just one minute because I feel like it's important to note here that there are some very problematic conspiracy theories associated with the Rothschild family who seem to be the most obvious reference in the film. Honestly, the references to them, they aren't that veiled. The party in the film takes place at one of their family's historic mansions, and the mask party is strikingly similar to ones they were famous for. But the Rothschilds are also of Jewish ethnicity, and with centuries of successful business holdings, are one of the richest families in the world. But they've also been the scapegoat in an untold number of conspiracy theories rooted in deep anti-Semitism. In fact, in 1940, there was even a Nazi propaganda film made about them that perpetuated anti-Semitic lies about their wealth and power in an effort to convert citizens into Nazi sympathizers. Like we've discussed before, many Illuminati conspiracy theories can be rooted in terrible anti-Semitism and harmful stereotypes. However, Kubrick himself was Jewish, and one of his wives has even gone on record about some of the prejudice Kubrick himself faced early in his career. So, what if the mansion and the party aren't direct references to a specific family, but two are a symbol? Their own sort of impossible window, glaring into a world that astute viewers will recognize that they have no business seeing. The impossible window is a way of concealing meaning even to those who are looking most closely for it. So, what is the warning in the movie? What could the strange rituals be referencing? Well, before we go too much further with Kubrick, I want to briefly tell you about a man named Jack Parsons. You may be familiar with the name. One of the world's most influential rocketry pioneers, born in 1914, he's credited as the founder of both Aerojet Engineering Company and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Though Aerojet is now defunct, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory remains a critical part of the United States aerospace and defense infrastructure. In fact, today, it's home to more than 6,000 employees and is in charge of highly advanced programs like operating NASA's Deep Space Network. But despite the ongoing impact of his legacy, Parsons had humble beginnings and became fascinated with rocketry doing backyard experiments as a boy. Even though he dropped out of college during the Great Depression, his insatiable curiosity and bold experiments led him to becoming an extremely important figure in the government's race to build weapons like the world had never seen before. With funding and government grants, Parsons, still in his 30s, had a promising future. Until that is, he became involved in a darkly secretive movement called the Lima. 
Founded by a controversial occult leader and black magic parishioner named Alistair Crowley, Thelema's main goal was to use Crowley's dark knowledge and secretive rituals to usher in what Crowley referred to as the Eon of Horus, a time when Crowley believed a dark sort of enlightenment would happen. The Lima symbol, a six-sided star with a flower in the middle, is thought to be derived from the Rosicrucian Rosy Cross. At Crowley's behest, Parsons and a group of the Lima insiders would move into a massive mansion in Southern California, where science experiments and rocketry development gave way to dark occult rituals. Look, I'm going to be really honest with you here. The details of those ceremonies, they're way too graphic and disturbing to get into on this podcast, but just know they involve attempting to channel ancient evils. Things at the mansion got very dark. Parsons would even eventually achieve the title Master of the Temple and was said to have taken a, quote, oath of the Antichrist in which he had said he had come, quote, to fulfill the law of the beast 666. Many of the rituals look a lot like the one seen in Eyes Wide Shut. Things got very weird at the mansion, and other fringe figures, including then-novelist and later Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard, would make their way through. Soon, though, word of the dark rituals and strange happenings began to circulate, and Parsons' obsession with the secretive group only began to grow. Even though Parsons' work was critical for developing weapons that would be needed to fight in world wars, his life soon began to spiral out of control. He eventually lost his security clearances. Unfazed, though, Parsons began to do contract work out of a small lab in his home. But the day before he was planning on going on a trip to help the Mexican government build its own rocketry factory, there was an explosion in Parsons' home lab. At the age of just 37, Jack Parsons was dead. To this day, no one is sure if the explosion was a freak accident, a suicide, or if Jack Parsons was murdered. So, how was this connected? Well, it's interesting to note that two of Kubrick's other films, 2001 A Space Odyssey and Dr. Strangelove, both have to do with rocketry and space travel. What was Kubrick trying to tell us through all of the symbols? How did the government's most important aerospace innovator become involved in a mysterious, ritualistic cult? There's one more thing about Jack Parsons' life that might be important to note here. After becoming involved with Thelema, Jack ended up falling in love with his wife's sister, a woman named Sarah. He would eventually leave his wife, and he and Sarah would become inseparable, eventually becoming a committed couple. However, during their time at the mansion, Sarah ended up leaving Jack for another man that she became romantically involved with. That man, he was a naval officer. His name was L. Ron Hubbard. You might have heard of him. He's the founder of Scientology. Where's this all going? Well, there's one more clue that I think it's important to address here. There's a brief moment in Eyes Wide Shut when Tom Cruise's character is walking down the street and is confronted by a group of young men. They taunt him for seemingly no reason. In the context of the film, it really doesn't hold any significance. That is, until you notice one detail. The men, who appear to be college-aged, are all wearing jackets and apparel emblazoned with the words Yale. That's the same powerful Ivy League institution founded in 1701 that just happens to be home to one of the most infamous secret societies in history, one with an extremely dark past and some extremely notable members. That's next time on Hiding Something. Hiding Something is an ironclad original. All episodes are written by me, Jesse Carey. Our post-production producer is Chandler Strang. Hey, if you like the show, be sure to leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. And if you want to connect with more listeners of the show, be sure to check out the Hiding Something subreddit. All right, everyone. We'll see you next time.
I'm pleased to join you on a special day, the annual Yale Day of Service. From the beginning, Yale and its people have been dedicated to serving a cause greater than self. Service to society is inscribed in Yale's founding document of 1701 and inscribed on the walls of the campus. Just look up at the south wall of Brantford Court and you'll see Nathan Hale's timeless words, I wish to be useful.